Welcome to Gin and Tobik. Woo! We are here for another series. Yep, another one. Just keeps happening. Just keeps going. It does. And so we got loads of gins. Oh yeah, tons of gin. Tons of gin. Tons of experts. Yeah. Tons of topics. Well, and that's the thing, you see. Give us a gin. Talk to anyone. We will. Mm. We will talk to anyone about anything. So yeah, we're going to talk to a ton of people about loads of stuff over gin. And I'm going to make rude comments while we do it to stay on brand. (laughs) And you never know, we might actually learn some stuff. We might even remember stuff. (laughs) Oh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Hey, Sarah. Hey. Happy last episode. Oh, happy last episode. Series three under our belt. We made it. We did. People said we couldn't. There were times where it was hard, (laughs) but we did it. We managed to drink all that gin and talk to people and hmm, possibly remember stuff. Maybe we should do a quiz episode. Fuck off. (laughs) But I'll drink to the idea. We shouldn't, though, because you should tell me about the guest first before we drink to this. We should indeed. Okay. This Who week, are we talking to on the final week of series three? On our final, final episode, we have... Not ever. Emily Hallinan. And she is an archaeologist at the Interdisciplinary Centre for Archaeology and Evolution of Human Behaviour at the University of Algarve, Faro, in Portugal. Oh, Portugal, lovely. And we're talking to her from Portugal, and I really hope that we don't get to see out of her window Mm. because I don't want to be made jealous. The Algarve's nice, isn't it? It's like a nice... Mm, The Algarve is very nice. Is it nice? It's very nice, yes. I don't know. Yeah, it's good, good. really lovely. Yeah, I don't want to see out of her window then. And just on the first taste of the gin, um, the gin's from... Portugal. Oh, is it? Yeah, we'll talk about it in a minute. But anyway, um, so back to Emily. Her research looks at stone tools and how hunter-gatherers adapted to survive and how behaviour changed over time. (laughs) So we're going to look at stone tools. Oh my God, what a last episode. (laughs) And our, our topic is stone tools. Stone tools. And our question is, what can they tell us about past humans? Horrible history horrible knowledge. Histories. This That's is what all. we need. I'm horrible thinking about histories. horrible histories and all I'm thinking about is them beating each other to death. I know. Yeah, using stones to like, yeah. Pummel each other to death. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or make holes in heads to get rid of yes. headaches. Yeah, that was a thing. Things like Most that. of them died. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, on a separate note, uh, Emily's quite good with gin. Oh, really? Because before she went to Portugal, she was at Cambridge and Darling, obviously. when she was in Cambridge, she was worked for a year at the Cambridge Distillery. Oh, okay, nice, nice. And she's thinking that when she's finished with research, she might like to open her distillery. So we might be talking to her on a separate topic That's eventually. Cute. That's nice. When That's we have nice. our own little topic gin. I like that. Yeah. Our own gin. <laughs> a lot of pressure on that. That's not. <laughs> but not yet. No. Not yet. So... End of series three. We're talking stone stone tools, <laughs> and we have Portuguese gin to do it with. Cheers! Cheers! Oh, isn't that just bloody oh, lovely? Let's let Emily in. Oh, 
See, I'm such a scientist. I measure mine oh. out because I have a specific ratio that works. I get really upset when I have over-diluted gin. Brilliant. But doesn't it just ruin, ruin a gin and tonic if it's the wrong strength? Yeah, That's true. absolutely. Exactly. So... Science. I love that. <laughs> we should start doing that. Well, I kind of do, but by the glass, and we've got gin and topic on uh, etched into the glass. So I always Very do nice. the gin up to the bottom of ton- topic. Is this really sad? Oh, yeah. And then I do the tonic up to the bottom of the See, gin. See, I went a little bit. But your gin went well <laughs> over the word topic. There's not much room for tonic. And look. It's great until you have a different glass. Yeah. And then I get thrown yeah, by different shaped glasses and people sort of say, oh, well, you're an expert. You're supposed to make a perfect one. And yeah. It's a lot of pressure. It is. It is. Yeah. It is. So that's why I even travel with my measuring cylinder. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that accuracy for yeah. gin. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us about the gin we're drinking as well, because this gin has come all the way from Portugal, because that is where you are too. It is. So I currently work in Portugal. I moved here two weeks before lockdown, which is a great time. Um, So I haven't really had a chance to explore much, um, but I have checked out some local gins. Um, So Cherish is made in Alentejo, which is the sort of middle, middle region of Portugal. Mm. Um, and I love it. I've tried several, and I think this is my favourite at the moment. Um, do you want to try it and tell me what you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. And we went with your suggested pairing of orange mm-hmm. and just refreshingly light fever tree. I'm very happy. And it is lovely. It's incredibly smooth. Very smooth. Very smooth, but still with a punch. It has got a punch. Very citrusy, but without it being too in your face. Mm -hmm. It's quite orange citrusy rather than lemons, limes. And I find the vanilla comes through, which is quite unusual in gin. Yeah, but it's not overpowering. Um, It's not like, ooh, vanilla, that's too sweet. It's just a nice little tingle. Yeah, 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 and I was tempted when we were talking about what to put in it. Mm. I was thinking of just sticking a vanilla pod in it. I might try that I one day. Tried that? I think that would be quite fun. Stir it with a vanilla pod. I have doubts about that. She wouldn't let me. <laughs> she wouldn't let me. We had to do orange. <laughs> and of course, I couldn't be an individual. I couldn't just do. I'm not being an individual on my own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and of course, you know much more about gin than we do. Theoretically. <laughs> so tell us a little bit before we go any further. So you, you've been working in a distillery. And so have you learnt to mix all the botanicals? And could you make us a gin? <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the fun things about working, so I was at the Cambridge Distillery, and they make their gins in a slightly different way to most others, where you kind of chuck everything in one big still, and Mm. you produce wonderful gins that way. But one of the beauties of the Cambridge Distillery's method is that you distill each botanical on its own, which means you can have a lot of fun with blending. Yeah. Um, So one of, I mean, most of my job was, I started out in the gin lab teaching masterclasses, which are excellent, um, if, if you have a chance to go on one of those. Um, but then I moved over to working in production where I spent a lot of time bottling gin, but also tasting gin because you have to quality check it. Um, <laughs> <A> hard <laughs> life. 
hand sticking labels on bottles. It was a running joke that you had to have a PhD to stick a label straight on a bottle. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the most fun things about working in, in the production room was that we, we got to experiment a bit. And um, yeah, I'd collect something while I was cycling on the way to the distillery, very idyllic, sort of found some some plants, uh, brought them in and we'd run them through the still and, and within a few hours could taste it. Oh, so um, it's a wonderfully creative but also scientific thing. Yeah. And back in series one, we did an episode on bees with Hamish. Hamish. Lovely Hamish. And um, he had had some of his honey distilled by the Cambridge Distillery and put in gin, and we were tasting that. And we also tasted some of the distillate of the honey, which was a really bizarre experience. So bizarre. It's very odd tasting alcoholic versions of all of the different things that go into gin. And tasting juniper on its own is quite interesting as well because you don't, I mean, we sort of know that it's what makes gin ginny, yeah. but actually if if you sort of try to describe what juniper tastes like, most people who are gin drinkers wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Um, no, it is a really weird one to do it because you don't normally have it in a gin on its own. Yeah. It's with all the yeah. other stuff and you're trying to see if you can taste all the other stuff rather than tasting juniper. Mm. Cool. Anyway, we're not here to talk about gin, though, with you as much as we'd love to. We're going to talk about stone tools, (laughs) which I suppose you could use for gin making, but not typically. No. I mean, I'd give it a go, but (laughs) I don't think our ancestors were were using stone tools to make gin. I could be Mm. very wrong, though. Well, there (laughs) goes my first guess. That's uh, that might be another PhD research (laughs) topic. (laughs) Did they use stone tools? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right. Relax and drink your gin. We're gonna spend uh, like no time at all (laughs) exploring the very little that we know about stone tools. Yeah. You're looking at me like I might have something. Well, I'm only looking at you thinking that we mentioned Stone Tools a while ago in Horrible Histories, and I'm wondering whether your brain has managed to rake up any Horrible History knowledge you know because what? that's the Here's only the thing, knowledge Sarah. we're going to have. They didn't ever do an episode purely on Stone, Stone Tools. Tools. They no. did talk about them in terms of they would bash somebody's head in with a stone tool, but they didn't ever be like, oh, here's a really interesting thing about stone tools because it was more about murder, poo... Yeah, all the angry stuff. words. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I, I I really can't help you here. I'm and learning about anything about stone tools from school, I seem to remember it all just being about the differences in the Stone Age and the Bronze, Bronze Age, Age and the Iron Age and the Iron Age. Yeah. So you never really. I don't remember. And the Stone Age was the one age. that they thought was like the most boring. No offense to the Stone Age, because they were like, oh, you know. Hunting, yeah, stones. doing things. And then they were like, and then this happened. So they kind of glazed over it a bit. They did. Yeah. They did. So I got nothing, really. I've got a vague image of a sort of stony-shaped axe thing, which is probably using, not correct. And using stones to chip away stones to make start pointier fire. stones. Well, and that. But I was thinking more about, you know, they chiseled stones. with yeah, yeah. Living where we live with the amount of flint... I didn't know we had a lot of flint here, so oh, yeah. thanks for that knowledge. We yeah, do. But yeah, I just recall um, stones being used to sharpen other stones and then attaching them to bits of wood. So we've got nothing, basically, as well. well okay, so here's our question. What can stone tools tell us about past humans? Yeah, got nothing. Got nothing. Uh, that they used them? They liked stones. 
that they found some stuff and put it together. I so suppose... anything helpful in there? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, both of you have raised some quite interesting points. And we'll start with you, Anya, because, I mean, I agree that the Stone Age gets glossed over yeah. at school. I mean, really, it's it's prehistory. So I'm quite pleased that they do even vaguely feature on horrible histories. Um but I mean, when we're talking about the Stone Age, it actually, I mean, how, how old do you think the Stone Age goes back? Make a guess. I, forever. Uh, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> BC times. Okay. So what if I tell you the oldest stone tools that we have been able to date are over three million years old? So that's wow. really the start of the Stone Age on the basis that it's when our ancestors started using stone to do things. Yeah. Um, so if you think about that time scale up until, I mean, people were still, some some people still do use stone tools today, very isolated people. Mm-hmm. I um, don't know. We use one in the kitchen quite often in a pestle well, and mortar. There you go. <laughs> oh, stone tools. For fuck's sake, Sarah. I mean, I use actual rock oh my God. for that. <laughs> oh, you did not just, that's so middle class. We're here again. I know. So sorry. (laughs) But it's a good observation. I mean, stones are very useful things and they're just lying around everywhere. Um, So really the fact that they make up probably more than 99% of human history in terms of what we made things out of, um, it really is disappointing that it's not talked about in schools. Um, But uh, lots of research goes on into the Stone Age and we, uh, well, it's a very, very long period of time. Because um, when does it, if it was three million years ago starting, when's the sort of official end date? It depends where you are in the world. I mean, kind of in, in Europe and the Middle East where you've got the uh, advent of farming, that's when we sort of say the Neolithic starts. But that's actually still Stone Age. Yeah. Um, but generally we tend to sort of um, see the cutoff as when people started using agriculture or sort of domesticating plants and animals rather than relying on an entirely hunter-gatherer way of life which is what we've done for most of our past. Okay because we were talking and just just saying just then that it's the stone age the bronze age and the iron age so nothing to do with agriculture just like here's bronze. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, so the Neolithic is the very tail end of the Stone Age, but it actually marks a a complete change in economy Mm. and how people are structuring their societies. Once you've got agriculture, you can start to build up surpluses of things. You start to stay in the same place because that's where your crops and your animals are. It's kind of a faff to move everything. Um, So really, that's the start, the change that we start to see in, in past human societies. So, I mean, I'd say that the Neolithic doesn't really count as Stone Age. They still made stone tools, but... But it wasn't a focus. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we're really long. So what's what's the sort of first stone tools then? 3,000. How do we define a... Three million. Three million, sorry. <laughs> Numbers, zeros, oh. come on. Cause <laughs> it's how, quite important. Because how do you define a stone tool if it's just a stone? Because it's not just a stone lying there. <laughs> it's a <the> noose. <laughs> yeah. Well... 
what happens when you make a stone tool is you well it's not just bashing two rocks together Aww. it's actually quite hard <laughs> yeah i know um so i mean people have tried to teach chimpanzees to make stone tools because they're really clever and they do use other sorts of tools they'll sort of use sticks or leaves all sorts of things they're very creative but actually teaching them to make stone tools people have done in zoos but not really they don't replicate it they don't teach mm. it in the wild so what you really have to do is you have to hit your stones together at a particular angle with a particular force. Mm. And that is very complex fracture mechanics in a way. It then creates a, a flake from the core, which is your lump of rock. And the flake gives you a sharp bit and the core is your lump of rock that you can make another flake from. Yeah. So that's the very basics of, of stone tool making. Um, I'm not very good at napping. I can only make a sort of two million year old type tool. <laughs> Um, and it doesn't, it looks all right on one side, but on the other side, it, it just looks like a rock. <laughs> and so first ones that are found, what what do they look like? Do they just look like that sort of napped bit of I think of they really do rock. just look like rock. And so, I, I mean, I haven't found any that old in the area that I work. And uh, the reason that people are able to say that these aren't just rocks is that you've got these specific sort of marks on it that show that things have been flaked off them but they also found them in buried deposits that they were able to interpret alongside bones right. that have cut marks so you can kind of then piece together the fact that this is human behavior yeah. not just a rock yeah. um, but sometimes and usually with a trained eye you can you can pick them out quite quite easily but in some of the places that I work where the ground is literally a carpet of rocks mm. a lot of them are stone tools but a lot of them aren't <laughs> yeah so what were they using them for? We talked about the whole hunter-gathering. They These very early ones, were they just to kill things? I mean, the very earliest ones, we don't even think they were killing things. We think they were scavenging carcasses that mm. bigger predators had left behind. I mean, there's a lot of debate about it, and we won't go into it because <laughs> it's not that fun. But, uh, I mean, once you've got a sharp edge, you can access lots more bits of the animal that are left behind. You can scrape the scrape the remaining meat off the bones mm. you can use hammer stones to pound and mash mm. it open to get um, marrow from inside bones so that's the kind of very early things that we think tools might have been used for but then once we get into killing things um you've got a whole range of things you can do with your stone um hafting it like you were saying sarah attaching it to sticks yeah. that's that's what we call that hafting um you've got yourself a nice spear that gets you a little bit further away from the animal that might have horns that you're trying <laughs> to kill um and then eventually we get bows and arrows which obviously increase the distance even more yeah yeah okay so what do we learn from stone tools about humans then because is there a transition a change of how they're using them what how how clever they're getting at, <laughs> at being able to chip away bits of stone, what they're connecting them to. How, what do we learn about people then, about our hunter-gatherers? So first of all, there's where we find the stone mm. tools. So the typical archaeologist that everybody thinks of is digging holes. Mm -hmm. um, now, actually, that's not the only way of finding things. Um, I'm what one might call a lazy archaeologist. <laughs> and, uh, I love I it. What a great just... title. <laughs> I just walk around and find the things that are lying there for me to find. Um, so I work in a particularly arid part of Southern Africa where because aridity means that you don't have water messing things up with sediments and vegetation and all that nonsense. You just have these lovely stony surfaces preserved where stone tools are lying pretty much where people left them. 
So it's not just necessarily about what the stone tools are, but where we find them. Yeah. So if you think about the stuff in your house, um, you have rooms where you have lots of stuff and that shows me what you were doing there. But then you might drop something when you go down the corridor. And so you can sort of see these corridors and rooms if you think about the whole landscape and where we find stone tools. The pile of stuff on the stairs that's been left there waiting (laughs) for somebody to come and take it to their bedroom, but they won't. (laughs) And it just keeps growing. Just until Sarah goes, take your stuff. (laughs) So we we find the Stone Age equivalent of that when we're walking around um, this landscape doing what we call surveys. Um, So one of the things that I do is I map the locations of these tools and start to piece together how people live out on their landscape, where they're napping tools, where they're getting their rocks from. Um, Sometimes you get wonderful insights because you're on a very windy ridge and you find this bowl that's a shelter behind and lo and behold, you find a whole (laughs) stone tool scatter. (laughs) As others have sheltered before you. (laughs) Exactly. And so it must be an area that doesn't get much traffic then. So the things haven't moved around a lot. There's not a lot of movement in all that time. So how far how far ago are you looking at? So I have stone tools that date back to at least a million years ago. Oh, wow. I mean, I can't date them because they're lying on the land surface. So that's one trade-off. We get this wonderful horizontal picture, but you lose the kind of vertical picture that you get from, from being able to dig. Mm. Um, but we can we we know enough about patterns of technology to be able to tie things into a sort of a broad time frame. Mm. So I can say that if I pick up a, a hand axe, which is a sort of pointy shaped, um, big multi tool of the of the Acheulean, as we call it, the early Stone Age, that's probably the oldest recognisable stone tool that we have that doesn't just look like a rock. Um, we can say that that's roughly between one point five million and. 300,000 years ago that's quite a big error margin and it's actually a bonkers time frame when you (laughs) think about it like that but we archaeologists just kind of bandy around these tens of thousands of years error margins all the time we've been chatting to people who do space stuff and they're like yeah we just kind of guess and if you're within like what was it a few light years or something yeah it's a power of 10 isn't it and it's it's if it's fine. sort of somewhere within that, yeah. then that's fine. So I think apply so it to similar. stone tools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the really cool things about picking up one of those very, very ancient tools is, is when you start to think a different species from me made this. Mm. And that's quite, a, that's quite a strange thing when you start to delve into that. So, I mean, you mentioned intelligence. It's, it's a rather sort of problematic term to use but uh, we tend to sort of have a a sort of conceptual cutoff of uh, when we became modern humans whatever that means so anatomically we became modern humans around 300 200,000 years ago there's kind of only very patchy fossil evidence Um, whereas the stone tool record doesn't quite happen in sync with the changes that we see in anatomy I mean we don't have enough fossils to really be able to track this very well but uh, behavior gives us a whole greater insight into what people are doing and stones are the way to get at that. So um, around 200,000 years ago, we see this sort of modern human transition and changes in technology take place. So rather than a sort of chipping away at stone to make a certain shape, Mm. we see people are preparing the surface and volume of their stone with very careful angles so that what they can produce is not um, shaping the, the block of stone into something, but to then hit it to produce something that's a specific shape and that's something that's a specific shape so whether it's a a point that you could use for a spear um that's that's quite important in terms of the steps that you have to make to get there 
So we think that people were having to explain how to do it to someone. You can't just learn it by watching, um, which is a whole different kind of social aspect of whatever kind of cognition we had. Mm. Um, and around sort of around 100,000 years ago, we have some great evidence for people uh, having symbolic behavior in terms of sort of art and beads and things that really kind of make us identify with with what we are today. And we can think about people in the past as really being like us. Mm. And so then it's, it's not just the stone tools, because tools you think of as being a thing that you use to do with something, but it's then creating the stone tools that then create jewellery mm-hmm. and other more frivolous yeah. items. Don't frivolous. Not, don't don't no. say frivolous. Not jewellery can be important. Imagine if that's like how a, a stone is used to propose to somebody in their <laughs> form, you know? Yeah, it could be cute. Yeah, be or for status sweet. or whatever. Yeah. But you... <laughs> Uh, but it is that um, – it was there an advent of going from uh, just creating a tool to creating tools to then create other things out of stones? I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, it's very difficult to then find the evidence for that. There's some – so when you dig a cave site, one of the really cool things is that it, you, within the sediments of it, you it preserves all these wonderful – well, in certain conditions um, – traces of organic things so there are some stone tools um 70 60,000 years old where they've been able to look at the residues left on them and have identified what was used to attach the stone to a haft and then what it's been used to cut so um you get a sense of so there's there's blood there's plant resin there's fat so people have recreated the sort of glue recipes that people were (laughs) were making in the past (laughs) And then working out what they were using them for. So we certainly know that they were they were using them on plant material, and obviously that doesn't preserve very well in, in certainly in open air context. We do have some in caves, mm-hmm. um, which is why it's important to use both caves and open air sites. Yeah, yeah. Because people weren't just cavemen. That's the other <laughs> bone of contention that I have with. I'm glad that wasn't the horrible history route that you went down. That they were just probably just the images cavemen. that we had. I, I, I do images. have the caveman song from Horrible Histories in my oh, head, yeah. but I'll do sing oh, it. Oh no 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 no! no. <laughs> I cannot sing. I will send a YouTube link. <laughs> <laughs> but I've. I've not considered that they weren't all living in caves. I'm not going to lie. And I, for some reason, that just really hadn't hit me. <laughs> you no, at me like, no, I know, because I'm now going, well, what were they living in? That's a good point. But also, if we just think about them as cavemen, you can't really hunt and gather in a cave. You're just, mm. I mean, that's maybe your home. But yeah. we, we go out to work every day and we come home. We probably spend more of our time outside our homes. Mm. Um, so, I mean, obviously what we bring back home, it tells us something, mm. but it doesn't tell me, you know, what doesn't really tell me what you've been doing mm. out, out in the world. Mm. Um, so we have to bear in mind when we're only looking at caves that we only see what people brought home. Sometimes they brought cool things home. Um, I've been talking to someone recently about a site we were digging where we found a fossil trilobite in layers that were probably about 60,000 60, years old. Now, geologically, it, it doesn't occur anywhere particularly close by, but someone clearly picked it up, thought, that's cool, and brought yeah, it home 60,000 yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm, yeah. So we get these kind of weird little insights. Hey, into... honey, I'm home. <laughs> Look what I found for you. <laughs> exactly. So I think we need to start not thinking about cavemen as being kind of big brutes with clubs that would you know, beat up mammoths. <laughs> Actually, more nuanced, sort of, they're hunter-gatherers. They were people like us. Mm. 
Um, they, I mean, really, they were they were ecologists. They were botanists. They knew how their environments were were made up. They knew what plants they could eat, where to find them. They knew all about animal behavior, how to track them. Um, they were anatomists. They could butcher animals. Uh, and physicists, because they knew how stones fracture and they could understand quite complex mechanics in that term. So, yeah, Stone Age people were not just not just cave people. <laughs> and you've been able to learn, have you been able to learn all that from the stones that you found, from all the archaeological remains? Or is some of it also just guessing? <gasps> <gasps> Science is never guessing. <laughs> we don't admit to it. <laughs> theories, well, the things, theories. Theories. So um, as well as the material things that we're looking at, obviously we want to think about past behaviour, but we aren't hunter-gatherers anymore, most mm. of us, but some people are hunter-gatherers. So while you have to be a bit careful not to kind of assume that people today who hunt and gather are, are the same as people in the past who hunt and gather, yeah. it does give us a sort of tool to think about um how what sort of scales these people live at spatially mm-hmm. so i mean how how big do you think uh hunter gatherer ranges how far do, does the average hunter gatherer travel in a day I mean, we use it in our house <laughs> quite a figure. lot is the stupid thing like dad will go to the shops and he'll come He's back and we'll be like hunter gatherer well done <laughs> i don't think that he has a car Yes. Um, so, but how far would he go to the shops then in kilometres? How far away is Waitrose in Cambridge? Just <laughs> short, short daily trip. Short, oh. short daily oh. trip. Well, we're talking only a few, few miles. Few miles. We yeah. might be five, five miles there and back yeah. to. Oh dear, I'm, I'm metric. Well, <laughs> we we sort of think that about ten kilometres is a theoretical hunter gatherer sort of. Range. Sort of I mean, that's the sort of thing that that I don't know. I run in an in an hour and a bit, but it's it's the sort of range where we think that in certain environments, people were able to collect enough food to sustain them for a day. Yeah. Um. So we use ethnography, so that's the study of other other communities living today, to sort of inform these sort of models that we then test against our our archaeological mm-hmm. um, evidence. Uh, so, I mean, it's quite fun and it reminds us that these are people in the past. People are not just rational actors. A lot of mm-hmm. scientific theory based, is based on the fact that humans are essentially lazy, though we call it optimal. Um, I mean, humans are lazy. They don't want to walk farther than they have to. Mm. But also people do weird things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't know that they, they might have avoided that hill over there because it was where someone were eaten by a lion or, you know, it's it's where... Uh, some nasty other tribe lives yeah. um it's a bit crude to put it that way but but we we can't know all these important things about how people actually lived in their landscapes but we and obviously we can't guess but we can get sort of insights by comparing um hunter-gatherer ethnographies in South Africa in particular we've got a wonderful archive that was uh in the 19th century um there were still hunter-gatherer populations living in very very remote places um, but they often came into conflict with farmers and uh, they would get arrested, brought to Cape Town, put in a prison. Mm. Um, but some people recognised the value of these people actually for telling us about their ways of life. Mm. And uh, um, a couple, well, not a couple, of brother and sister called Lucy Lloyd and William Blake <laughs> um, brought some of these people into their home and learnt their language, learnt their stories and actually unlocked this wealth of 
of history um, about how these people understood their landscapes, where they used to, to forage. And, and it was this amazing kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not the same as the archaeology we find, but it's an amazing insight that we, we have from this archive that we still use today to kind of supplement the way that we think about past behaviour. So we can track the distances that some people were moving based on um, the geological sources of some of their, their stones. We know that geologically it can only occur in this sort of this particular region. But we can tell that when someone's taken one of those rocks 50 kilometres, 60 kilometres and left it there, that it has to have come from from the first place mm. somehow. So that's how we get a sort of a sense of of the distances that people were ranging over. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they sort of up, got up one day and said, right, I'm going to go over there and walk for 60 kilometres. That's not quite how it works. But you sort of have this, someone once explained it to me beautifully. It's, it's like towels at the beach. Mm. So you go to a beach and it's really, really crowded. But you keep going down to the end of the beach and you go a little bit further than the last person because that's where your empty spot is. And you put your towel there and set up. But then the next people come a little bit further and you have this sort of rolling expansion down the space of the beach. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of quite a good way of thinking about human mobility in the past because, you know, you didn't get up one morning and think I'm going to go over there. Um, you know see what's on the other side of those mountains and we talk about sort of migrations out of Africa and things and and it's very difficult to actually conceptualize how that happened I mean it happened over tens of thousands of years within one generation you're not going to move much further than you know the next towel along but um, it's something that we as archaeologists kind of we generalize far too much and forget to think about the actual dynamics of it Mm. Um, so it's really fun when you do find that rock that's being carried however far or sometimes I work in an inland area sometimes we find shells that must have come from found one one little rock art site where someone had painted weird things on the on the cave wall and they'd stuffed a shell that was about about 30 centimeters big down a crack in the back of the rock don't know what they were doing there um, but it must have come from the coast at least 80 to 100 kilometers away. Wow. They carried it there because they thought it was cool. Yeah. Uh, and there's probably something symbolic about why they shoved it in a crack in the back of a cave too. But well, they could have yeah, just been that, hiding it from the sibling. Yeah, <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I was going to say, who My do shell. you know who always brings yeah. shells back from the beach? And then just, yeah. Young kids. Leave them in, in pockets. the pockets. <laughs> Yeah. Hide them behind the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, look at my rock. Okay, why have you got that rock? It was a child. <laughs> so, not to judge, but it's quite a niche interest that you've got here in old rocks. And I've got to ask how you decided to study old rocks. <laughs> so, I suppose I started thinking about deep time when I, I went to Africa on my gap yard. Yeah, I was one of those. Uh, yeah, don't worry. I'm at uni in <laughs> and, Bristol. Uh, I know plenty of gap yards. <laughs> And uh, it, I worked with some archaeologists there because I knew I wanted to study archaeology at university, but I hadn't sort of decided what, you know, the whole of human history was, was open to yeah. me. I was kind of interested in Egypt, but who isn't? Yeah. Um, and actually being in South Africa made me realise that, that human history is deep mm-hmm. and it's, it's kind of crazy when you start to unpack that. And then when I was at university, it was a time when there were a lot of really exciting publications related to sort of evidence that showed that ancient people were like us. Mm-hmm. So these these sort of art and beads and really cool things that aren't really about stone tools um, started being, there was a lot of research publishing that while I was at university. And I thought, yeah, that's really cool. But then I did come out of my final year stone tool exam crying and saying I was never going to study a stone tool again. No! Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, look at me now. So. <laughs> 
And there's one for the lesson book kids. And so what was it that brought you back then? Was there any moment or did it just evolve over time? Oh, well, boom tish. Oh, very nice. <laughs> so I, I then decided to do a master's in Cape Town, which was which was wonderful. And uh, uh, a lovely professor there sort of said, yes, I think I've got a project that you'd like to work on. And sort of he muttered a bit about landscapes mm-hmm. and, and mountains and river valleys. And I thought, yes, that sounds... That sounds great. <laughs> nothing to do with stone tools. It's nothing to do with stone tools. It's just it's just landscapes, honest, honest. There just happened to be a few stone tools. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I had so I went out there all sort of naively keen and uh, I had an hour in the field with the, with um, my professor and he sort of showed me showed me some stone tools and I was just sitting there thinking they they just all look like rocks <laughs> and I went and had lunch with someone afterwards and and I said I don't know how I'm going to do this masters I don't think I'm going to find any stone tools I mean for, fast forward a, a couple of months and uh, at the end of my masters I'd found thirteen thousand stone wow, tools thirteen thousand. And that was just the things that we, wow. we recorded. So there's here's a fun little fact. So think of the, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Mm-hmm. It's quite big, pretty fucking big. Mm-hmm. Um, that's made up of 25 million cubic metres of stone, mm-hmm. if you can picture that. A lot of stone. So Big amount of stone. A lot of stone. Mm-hmm. So some scientists in Cambridge calculated, based on the, the quantities of stone tools they'd found when they were surveying the Sahara and other studies elsewhere, that the volume of stone tools on the landscape in Africa is equivalent to finding one to three great pyramids per square kilometre across Jeez. Africa. That's insane. Wow. I said niche, it's not niche. I mean, That's a fuck ton of stone tools. That is. The official exactly. term. It is. <laughs> it is. Wow. And so, as you said, you were looking at them and you're like, I can't find, I don't know how I'm going to find stone tools because they're just rocks. And I'm imagining on a beach yeah and you know when you're just looking around going yeah maybe I could find a fossil and you're there going (laughs) stone stone stones I have no idea and I walk for like half an hour just going stones shells stones I have no idea how how do they how do you find them do you just train an eye to see these differences in rocks um so really once you learn to recognize a few very distinctive features so basically you can recognize where where someone has hit a stone with the hammer it then produces a sort of a bulb um have you ever thrown a, a stone at glass no um, never or, <laughs> or dropped dropped a glass and sometimes you see this sort of uh, we call it conchoidal fracture so these kind of rings like ripples mm. and um that's the direction of force glass means you can see it but we see it on stone um, you see these these kind of ripples. It's beautiful on flint. And next time you're going past a flint building in flint face building in Norfolk, have a look because you'll see that um, where they've been sort of cut, you can see these sort of these ripple marks. So once you train your eye into recognizing the points at which uh, the stone has been hit and the the internal face of it, and usually you can see what we call scars on the outside mm. of it where other bits of chipping have happened. Mm. You really get your eye in quite quite quickly. Um, I mean, it was all fine right in the area where I was doing my master's. Then when I went into the area where I did my PhD, it's called the Tanqua Karoo. And it's um, it's basically renowned for being the longest uninterrupted stretch of road in South Africa. It's wow. a dirt road, it's dirt and rocks. Um, it's something like 250 kilometers between two yeah. towns. Wow. 
Um, the only other thing that happens in the tank of Karoo, other than my field work, is a is an Africa burn at the equivalent of Burning Man. Just oh wow! <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you go? Is um, now the question. <laughs> Well, I got a free ticket through some farmers we knew who were supplying the, I mean, it's a very hippie yeah. place, um, with no offence to the Africa burn people. And I mean, they build these amazing big sculptures and they burn them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very hippie. We could hear, we're used to the beautiful silence of the mm. desert and we could hear this trance music from coming across the, it was an experience and it was quite wow. weird. Yeah. So they they have quite interesting philosophy where they you're not allowed to leave any traces behind. And actually, with credit to them and the people who clear up after it, when I did a survey in that area looking for for archaeology, there was not there was nothing else there, which was kind of mm. weird because usually you find you know a bit of a dead tire or something mm. that road shreds tires to bits. Yeah. Um, but there was literally nothing, and because they have this philosophy of of no matter out of place. Yeah. Um, so it was quite weird for an archaeologist to find literally nothing mm-hmm. because usually people leave people leave rubbish. Yeah. I mean, it's it's what stone tools are. Yeah, um, yeah, true. I hadn't thought yeah. about that. Yeah, God, you find the thing that fell out of someone's pocket, mm. so to speak. Yeah, um, and sometimes you know you can see where you can imagine in the past. You know, it's broken. Damn it, you throw it away because you're not going to bother carrying it home. Yeah. Sometimes you also find pieces that have broken and someone's tried to recreate it to sort of keep carry on mm-hmm. using it. So recycling is a very, very old concept. Yeah. Um, there are some we often find, because there's there are these stone tools from, from all time periods, we find much later pieces that have been, they've picked up a big uh, flake from the, from the Middle Stone Age from around 200,000 years ago and just treated it like any other kind of rock and made their tool in that. <laughs> it's a convenient, convenient yeah. recycling. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. So could I go into my field? Your my field. field. Do you not, own a field? Not my field. I don't own a field. field. Yeah. No, but I Are feel there rocks in your field. I feel it's mine because <laughs> it's just there. Right. Um so could I go into a field and find a stone tool if I looked for Ooh. certain things? Ooh. In so you could potentially find stone tools there, but the problem is that plows hitting stones can sometimes have the same effect as people hitting stones. So, I mean, a number of people have brought me sort of bits of Neolithic arrowhead and thing that they found. And there is a lot of archaeology in Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, but I couldn't guarantee it. Whereas a lot of South Africa away from the the built-up areas, it's one of the reasons that I love working there, pretty much guaranteed to set foot out of the car and be very close to a mm. to a stone tool but you often find hand axes built into stone walls there because people have just found rocks lying around and and reused them so i mean there literally is archaeology everywhere i love that in in a wall near us in a flint wall um go on what have you got here instead of mm-hmm. a, an axe in the wall uh, there's some false teeth <laughs> there is yeah <laughs> You're yeah. going to have to point that out There's to me. There's false teeth that have been put in the mortar as the wall was being made. I bet I know who owns that And wall. And there's a little, I think there's a little um, cherubs, small yeah, cherubs as well that have been put into the mortar when it's it was sucked. made. <laughs> I mean, this is a dream for archaeologists. And every so often, I mean, there's a joke among archaeologists that when you find something weird, you just call it ritual. Mm. I mean, people do weird things. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> just to have a laugh I mean read some of the graffiti at Pompeii and people were just as as rude and, and crazy as we are <laughs> so what are the coolest things that you've found 
So and now this is where we get into something very niche. Excellent. So um, <laughs> even more niche than just stone tools. So I found um, some types of stone tools that uh, we haven't found in South Africa before. So it's a way of making a stone point. And I talked a bit about how you have to shape the angles of your rock. Mm. Um, so it's a very specific way of preparing the angles is the sort of terms that we use. Um, and basically they've done it back to front to the way that people usually do it. Right. And this was quite odd, but we found a site where we had hundreds of these cores. So the core is what's left behind when you then make a point um, using this particular method. And we call it the Nubian method because we find it a lot in North Africa. Mm. Um, but it's, it's not something we found in South Africa before yet in my little desert, we find them everywhere. So that's my very geeky thing that I found that is the coolest thing. Any ideas why? Well, this is what my current research is actually investigating. So I'm using fancy schmancy 3D technology to uh, scan these cores to then compare them scientifically using maths and statistics and all those horrible, scary things. Look, I actually have one here. I have a 3D print of one. Oh, cool. Um, so oh, it looks like a little love heart. It does look like it a love a heart. Bit. So what's really cool, this is actually from Egypt, oh. is that you can fit them back together. So actually that's one of the coolest things I found was when you can... So remembering this is a podcast. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, so yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I need we to have, explain what that we is. We have two bits <laughs> that sit really nicely one into the other. That's so you really can cool. see, and so that's then you can see how it's been chipped yeah. off. Exactly. <laughs> so are you now doing this in Portugal or are you still going over to South Africa? Um, so I was super lucky and went to South Africa uh, a couple of months ago, which oh, I'd been waiting so long to do that. Um, I was very lucky with all of the, the COVID mm. drama. Um, so yeah, I went out and we 3D scanned. I took the, the department 3D scanner and we scanned... Uh, something like 400 stone tools Um, it was quite intense Mm. Um, so now I have a lot of a lot of data to work on but what I'm aiming to do is to be able to compare these these particular Nubian technology tools that we found in South Africa with Nubian technology from where we find it elsewhere in the world Mm. and the, the sort of hypothesis that I'm testing is well, these are both deserts. So is there something about this desert environment that yeah. means that it's more efficient for a hunter-gatherer to make their tool in this way? Yeah. Is it a better way of managing your raw material? Can you mass produce things more? Are your mm. points thicker? Um, these are the questions that the fancy schmancy maths is hopefully going to help with. But I mean, what, what we often lose sight of when we're doing good science is that, that this is an innovation that people made to that there was a reason behind mm. it, whether it was just... You know, Fred thought about it one day and then then the idea caught on. That's one way that innovation spread. But also it's more likely to spread if it's actually a better way of doing something. Mm. Um, so the fact that we find this in this in this particular desert environment, you don't find it in the mountains just a couple of kilometers away. Um, and I'd never seen it before until I until I looked in this region. Um, and no one had looked there before, which is the other reason we didn't know about it. Um, so I think just the whole range of of human behavior is is something that we can get up through stone tools and different people's traditions, different, I guess, fashions in a way. I mean, a good way of thinking about technology is it's a bit like an operating system. So we all have a my mobile mm-hmm. phone um, and they all do basically the same things. But some of us have iPhones, some of us have Android. They do the same things, but it's a different operating mm-hmm. system. Now, the analogy falls short because it doesn't really tell me much about your sort of your group 
affiliation or how you learn oh, to I use don't your phone. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. In this household, <laughs> it might. There's a real divide here <laughs> between the Android and the Apple users. It's a bit like Marmite. Oh, my God. <laughs> and those that love or hate the other. And the ones who are on Android don't get put in the family group chat. So really, that's their loss. <laughs> Family group chats are a whole different. Yeah, let's not go down that. (laughs) So, when you were talking about the different places and everything, have they are there quite specific areas in which they are making stone tools in that way? They've got certain types of stone tools, and then that's our little secret (laughs) in that area. So, we do see these sort of regional trends, and it's it's a way of thinking about how far people ranged within environments. Um, again, but we go back to the beach towel thing. You know, it's, it's a very gradual mm. sort of increase in, in distances. And I don't think we've really scratched the surface of it yet in terms of, of exploring this area. Um, and there are so many other, bit of my kind of crusade at the moment is that people don't really look in the, in the sort of arid interior bits of Africa because it's hard work. It's difficult. There aren't roads. It's hot. It's stony. There are nasty snakes much easier to go and dig a nice cave where you know you're going to find the stuff. snakes would put me um, off i'm not mm, gonna lie that yeah, yeah. The snakes and the will, spiders go there with snakes. because well i was thinking about you know not spiders i'm not thinking about spiders um the millions of years of change of development of stone tools you know just think about your analogy with phones and how you know globally you know there are there are things that we've we've begun to do pretty much similarly to. It sort of spreads. And a lot of things now with the advent of technology in digital form spreads quicker and quicker. So can you is there then sort of more defined um separations of stone tools that you that you find from millions and millions of years ago that as you get closer in time, they become similar in technology? To yeah. So it's actually almost the reverse. Right. So we, I think I mentioned hand axes. They're this this kind of big multi-tool. That we, that we call them bifaces because they're flaked on two sides. Um, and they're sort of usually teardrop shaped. And they're a tool that we find across Africa, but we also find them across Europe and parts of Asia. And they persisted for uh, between about 1.5 million years ago and 300,000 years ago. That's over a million years. And they're relatively the same. And they're really they're really diagnostic. And so we sort of think of them as being like the Swiss army knife of the, of the early stone age and that it was such a useful tool. Um, It it essentially enabled people to gradually migrate out of Africa into these new environments. And so that's um, a really great example of technological spread that I don't think is paralleled by any other kind of universal technology. Mm. The next big leap in terms of it's conceptually in terms of stone tools is, is this prepared prepared core technology we call it lavawa because we have this awful habit of naming everything after somewhere random in france um it's it's a a quirk of of stone stone age archaeology um so we have this lavawa technology that we associate with with modern humans who evolved around 200,000 years ago and that's something that we also see a lot in europe but neanderthals had had lavawa technology right um so and let's not not delve into that deep (laughs) deep chasm there but um uh, stone tools really do tell us about big population events and movements Mm -hmm. and ancient dna is now another amazing thing that can tell us a lot about those sorts of things 
Um, but in terms of actual material things that people have left behind, there's nothing else really available to us. I mean, you can look at the bones that people have butchered from their animals and brought back to their caves, but bone doesn't always preserve. You don't always bring back the whole animal. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I argue that stones are the best. <laughs> <laughs> stones um, are better than bones. And you can keep that quote and shove it on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, wait. Stones are better than bones. It's probably not the best. It could be taken totally out of context. Yeah, that's my totally sudden thinking. I was like, oh, yeah. whole not. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Right. We'll scrap that t-shirt then. Yeah. 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 Definitely yeah. Want it to <laughs> Done. We're not making it. Another cool thing that um, that we do see in, in terms of stone tools is that um, people could invent things independently in different parts of the world. And that's also what my, my Nubian technology, we think, is showing. It's not because people from Egypt toddled down all the way to South Africa with this technology. Said, hey, guys. Said, hey, guys, look, we can make this. <laughs> exactly. It's that they both came up independently with a solution. It's like bats and birds. They both develop wings independently. So, I mean, pyramids, you get pyramids in Egypt, in South America. These, these phenomena we can invent things independently. So we see this a lot with stone tools and we have to be quite careful that people don't, don't use stone tools as a marker of this person mm. or these people carried their tool and their technology and their knowledge and spread it to these people. Mm. That does happen because that's how, you know, when groups start into, into mixing, when they meet, there is going to be some kind of exchange of ideas and it's very difficult to actually test these different scenarios in the past. Was it the same group of people with this stone tool or did they meet these other people mm. and teach them how to make it or did they just come up with the idea on their own? It's one of the big questions that we're, we're trying to deal with, um, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> And so stone's pretty cool. I was going to say, I didn't want to just be like, stone's cool, but stone's kind of cool. It is pretty yeah. cool. I'm impressed. It's very cool. <laughs> and so much, so many different types of yeah. stone and in different places and lasts for such a long time. And so much still to discover, which is what's so really much. cool, because I kind of like when there's still like this, like, and in a few years, what? we're going to have this thing and we don't know it yet. Which is bonkers when you think, you know, these stones have been around for such a long yeah. time and we're, you know, they're talking about, well, Stone Age is that thing in the past that we're talk about, taught about at school that is a stepping stone to... to the next bit and Bronze Age and yeah. Iron Age and all the rest of it. All of those ages. But yet we're still learning so much about Stone Age. Can we talk a little bit about a side project that I am involved in? Absolutely. That's not a great transition. No. Love uh, a side I, project. So um, are you currently well. involved in any awesome side projects? <laughs> Done. You don't know it's awesome yet. You I know, know it's, it's going to be awesome. Project. It is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's... <laughs> So I've been working with a charity called, well, they're a not-for-profit organisation in South Africa called Children's Book Network. Mm -hmm. And they aim to bring books and reading to children who might not otherwise have access mm. to it. So we've done all sorts of really cool workshops. Because I'm the resident archaeologist, we do fun things like making archaeology in a jar, putting nice. layers of things in, or human timelines where you send someone a kilometre <laughs> down the road to be a million years ago. We have great fun. But now we've got to start to reinvent things in the sort of post-COVID mm. age. Um, so I talked a bit about my 3D scanning of, yes. of rocks. And we're starting a really cool project um, called Toolboxes. And um, we are making 3D printed stone tools yeah. that my friend and uh, award-winning children's author Leslie Beek who's based in South Africa is writing stories about cool. so we're going to be able to 
give children a sort of educational pack that has a storybook about an artifact. There are going to be five artifacts in the toolbox. Um, they can read about the, the stone as it was experienced by the person in the past. So we have stories about people learning to nap, yeah. learning to hunt and gather. And also they're going to learn about the sort of process that archaeologists go about when they're finding things, thinking about these really crazy big questions mm. that you don't really address at school. Mm. Um, so we're really excited about this. And we've got some prototype stone tool prints done nice. and hoping to roll that out in uh, next year. Um, so hopefully we're going to put the models of the tools online so people can download them and maybe then sponsor toolboxes to roll out to mm. local schools in this very, very isolated part of South Africa. It's mm. they, you know, they they've sort of barely left the farm or the, mm. the near nearby town because it's just this this very isolated mm. place. Um, so trying to kind of engage children and get them access to stories and the whole rest of the world is is really important yeah. yeah and stone tools and archaeology is such an engaging thing i mean every time i meet people and say i'm an archaeologist so oh i used to want to be one yeah. of those yeah actually um, i know so everyone many people does. who did as kids yeah. yeah yeah oh thank you for telling us about that project because now i'm really excited about it and i want everyone to go and that just get involved so good. good i'll send you a link <laughs> i like it Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great fun. Oh, it's been really good fun. I've learned about old rocks. I've got a cause to get behind. I'm excited. (laughs) Job done. Yeah. (laughs) Happy days. And I've discovered a new gin. I'm really enjoying the Sharish. Yeah. And I love, we didn't actually talk about at the beginning how stunning The the bottle is, but... It is lovely. What isn't it? do you know? What is the picture? Is that a city or a place or a building? Do you so know? I, I think it's based on from. I haven't been to the distillery. I don't know the region, but I think it's based on the town in Alentejo, which I think has strong Islamic links because there's a lot of Islamic heritage in Portugal. Um, I don't know the history, only the prehistory. Um, so I think that it's related to that kind of influence. Um, something to do with a mountain. Um, it looks nice. It, it oh, seems, but it's lovely. It it's does. lovely. What a bloody good episode. What a way to finish because yeah, right. you're also yeah. our final episode of series three. Yeah. <laughs> so, what a way to end. What a way. What a day. What a day. <laughs> Time for more gin. Time no, for another glass. was the last episode of series three so it was and we ended on rocks and you know what really enjoyed myself (laughs) rocks are really cool listen especially south african rocks south african rocks better than rocks in my field (laughs) (laughs) rocks in that field boring hit by all sorts of farm machines can't get a proper like no i know you're not gonna pick it up and go oh that's a tool rocks in south africa much better very cool. Yeah. But no, I think a good episode on rocks. Really good. So, come on then. What have you okay. learned? What can stone tools tell us about past humans? They can tell us where they travelled. They can. Which I think is pretty cool. That is. Yeah. They can tell us how they made those tools. Totally. Yeah, so how they're doing it and how they're passing on that yeah. learning of doing it. Yeah. The kinds of tools that they're producing and therefore how far they're going yeah exactly what they're taking with them yeah and sort of how we developed those skills of making those tools over time yeah and time so much time bonkers three million years of time. time
Lots so far. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Totally. Mm. Deep time. I like that term. Deep time. I haven't heard that before. No, it's good. It's good. But having that deep time of humans, which I think is a really good one because it is really hard to like imagine somebody that far ago creating a stone tool. But then when you've got them, as Emily was saying, you're looking at these tools, suddenly you have this moment of, oh my God, a person all these years ago made this. Yeah. that's quite and the bonkers struggle and cool. that you might find when yeah. they're trying to chop that bit off properly, and that they are all a bit bonkers like us. Yeah, and they like to hide shells. I quite like that. I like knowing that years ago there was somebody who thought this is a cool shell. I'm going to carry this all this way and then shove it in a crack in a rock. Yeah, yeah. and you think about all those things that we do and the distances or not that we travel, and those little weirdy beardy things that we do that you might have carried a rock in your pocket especially if you're a child yeah and then just dropped it and then being sad about it but then somebody picked it up and put it on an arrow and killed a beast with it (laughs) and there we go sarah's story time complete (laughs) well that was series three there we go it was good it was a good series i had fun and i'm sure we'll be back for more at some point uh, yeah, already planning series four. Oh, God, here we go. But for now, what a day. Enjoy your gin. See ya. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that little episode. You got to the end, so hopefully you did. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> well done. If you'd like more content from us, then you can follow us on Instagram. You can, and you'll also find our chief gin taster, the Gin Monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can, if you want, at hello at ginandtopic.com if you click subscribe as well that would be really handy reviews tell people for you to do and we'll be back next week with another episode i know and another guest and another gin yay (laughs) and don't forget to join me and emma in our new tasting room on sunday and she can tell us all about the gin